Lucifer, son of the morning, I'm gonna chase you out of earth. to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 109 where we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and buy a special bargain with the mysterious Lord L who smells of brimstone. <laughs> this week we are going to be launching the 2018 hashtag best event ever crossover with a bunch of our friends in the blogging and podcasting world, and we're going to list all those uh, all those fellows, uh, all those folks later on. I should say mm-hmm. uh, we are going to be launching with Underworld Unleashed number one, cover dated November 1995, story by Mark Wade, pencils Howard Porter, inks by Dan Green, and. Uh, there really is a lot of green ink in this oh, one. Oh, he laid down some ink on his sword. I hope he, <laughs> I hope he got an ink stipend before he yes. turned into this thing. We got letters by Chris Eliopoulos, uh, colors Rick Taylor, separations by Heroic Age, uh, assistant editor Ali Morales, associate, edi- uh, blah, associate editor even, Ruben Diaz, editor Brian Augustine, cover price two ninety five USD. Four twenty-five Canadian and two pounds wherever they use pounds. <laughs> I think it's just the one place nowadays, especially. <laughs> uh, yeah. So as usual, we're going to talk about the folks that uh, were involved in making this very comic, and of course, we have a name we've talked about plenty of times: Mark Wade, born March twenty-first, nineteen sixty-two, in Hueytown, Alabama. In nineteen sixty-six, Mark's dad brought home Batman number one hundred and eighty. Cover date is May. Story is Death Knocks Three Times. This was the first issue out after the debut of Bill Dozier's Batman television show that starred Adam West. Uh, Mark was captivated by this comic, and he began collecting at age three. This newsstand had a wall of comics, which became Mark's four-color library. He never stopped collecting comics, not when he got older, not due to girls, and for no reason he always collected comics, and I bet to this very day he still collects comics. Uh, Before becoming a teenager... Mark used to read every comic book twice consecutively, then copy its pertinent information and a description of the story onto a 3x5 index card and file it away. Now, how is that? That is something only a collector could understand, right, Chris? Absolutely. I think, like, yeah. that's exactly the kind of, like, uh, scrutiny you give your uh, collection. Uh, now, <laughs> in uh, 1979, Mark watched Superman the movie. He found this to be a life-changing experience. He sat through the movie twice in a row, and left with a strong belief in heroism. He said, seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I've followed ever since. You think he paid for the second sitting? I don't think he did, Chris, i got to tell you. I think he probably <laughs> schemed it, which Superman would not have would done. Would never do. But uh, no. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he went back and made amends at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he dreamed of working in comics, but it didn't, uh, didn't think he wrote or drew well enough to qualify. He attended Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, which is a good school for journalism, but he stopped pursuing journalism when uh, he says, it dawned on me in about the first week and a half that I'd never, ever have what it takes 
to stand in front of a grieving widow and stick a microphone into her face. So Mark changed his major a few times, eventually settling, settling on an English with a minor in physics, but he didn't even actually graduate. So he has no major or minor. In fact, it just it's classes true. that he took. Now, after leaving college, he found work for Amazing Heroes and the Comics Buyer's Guide. In 1984, DC editor Sal Amendola did a cross-country talent search. Uh, Mark was living in Dallas at the time, and he spoke with Amendola, who was looking for story pitches. Mark asked him which character hadn't been pitched yet. Sal replied, you know, of all the pitches I've gotten so far, nobody's pitched a Superman story. Everybody wants to write Batman. Nobody's tried for Superman. And the editor, Julie Schwartz, is actively looking for eight-page stories. Since Mark already knew Julie through Amazing Heroes, and he was about to be in New York for the first time ever, he figured why not set up an in-person meeting with Julie. Schwartz picked up the story, and uh, Wade's first professional comics work appeared in Action Comics number 572, October 1985 cover date. The story was called The Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress, which we actually just looked at not yeah, too long we did. ago. And it, and it for the first out, time ever. Who, who, what was the... Uh... It was the it was the uh, robots, like, right? Yeah, static electricity or something yeah. sent sent all the stuff to a different universe. There you go. Uh, now, <laughs> the following year, Wade would pitch thousands of stories. Schwartz bought one, and it was heavily edited by he and his assistant e, uh, Nelson E. Nelson Bridwell, and thus his freelance comic book writing career was put on hold. In 1986, Mark would move to Los Angeles and work for Fantagraphics as an editor. By spring of 1987, Mark was packaging and editing his own magazine called Comics Week. This was an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air, he says. It lasted five issues, but uh, Comics Week did launch the career of industry critic Sidney Mellon, also author of the satirical comic Thunderskull No. 1 from 1989. A DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought he might be a good, Mark might be a good fit for the brand new imprint Piranha Press. That deal fell through, but he was hired on as an associate editor at age 25 by Dick Giordano. He moved from L.A. to New York for this, what he thought was his dream job. For two years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he was fired by 1990. Uh, While he was there, he also edited Batman Gotham by Gaslight, kicking off the Elseworlds imprint. After that, Mark became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics. His first work consisted... Uh, of work for DC's short-lived Impact Comics line, where he wrote The Comet and scripted dialogue for Legend of the Shield. Now, these are those MLJ Archie Comics heroes that were bought by DC for a while, but I think they've reverted back to Archie by now. Uh, 1992, Wade was hired by editor Brian Augustine to write The Flash, and Mark stayed on The Flash for an eight-year run. Though Though Mark and Mike Waringo... Uh, co-created Bart Allen, a.k.a. Impulse. Impulse was launched into his own series in April 1995 by Wade and artist Humberto Ramos. Now, Mark would hop across the road to Marvel, and his first major project for them was as one of the writers of the Age of Apocalypse crossover, which we covered in extreme long form in Cosmic <laughs> Treadmill episodes 100 through 105. I think it's like something like 13 hours of Age of Apocalypse. Yep. And it's all available in the archives. Uh, He would later co-create the Onslaught character, along with Andy Kubit, for the X-Men line. Uh, And in in the fall of 1995, he wrote the book we're just about to discuss very, very soon. But first, jump across the table to Howard Porter. He 
was born on a certain date in the late mid mid to late 20th century, we think, uh, probably on dry land, maybe in Connecticut. I'd say three know. of four of those are probably correct, I'm guessing. Probably correct. Yeah. <laughs> now, in Connecticut, he graduated from Payer College of Art, where he majored in illustration. And uh, if you were to Google notable alumni of Payer College, just like we did, you'd find Howard Porter. It's all good, so they haven't disowned him for any reason. That's nice. <laughs> Now, one of his instructors there was Frank McLaughlin, the comic artist who co-created Judo Master for Charlton and even served as the Connecticut-based publisher's art director for a time. He'd go on to pencil and or ink nearly every notable property for Marvel and DC Comics. In addition to to teaching at uh, Pear, McLaughlin also taught at Guy Gilchrist Cartooning Academy. This was also in Connecticut. And, of course, Charlton Comics also in Derby, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, McLaughlin offered Porter some gigs, assisting him on inking projects, which led him to meeting other inkers and finding his way in, into the industry. Porter's first work was as a fill-in artist on DC Comics' Dark Stars number 13, that had an October 1993 cover date. After a few more fill-ins, Howard received his first permanent penciling gig. This was DC Comics' The Ray, written by Christopher Priest, drawing 13 out of the first 15 issues of the series from 1994 to 1995 cover dates. From here, he draw the Underworld Unleashed event miniseries, which is this very issue. Yes, we hop right into it. Underworld Unleashed, number one. Story opens with five members of the Flash's rogues gallery being given a sure thing from their on-again, off-again pal and fellow Flash foe, Abracadabra. Now, they're sick of being looked at as jokes, and they see this as an opportunity to be seen as legitimate, and maybe even get themselves a measure of respect. Now, the rogues we're talking about here are Captain Boomerang, Captain Cold, Heat Wave, Mirror Master, and the Weather Wizard. And now, you know, I know that uh, there are different incarnations, but to me, this will always be the the core rogues. You the know, rogues, know Trickster yeah. gets gets involved in Golden Glider, but yeah, those, to yeah. me, though, these, these, these are the five, these are the Beatles. These are the, the rogues, core, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they're each given they're each given a location on a map where they're going to raise a little hell, uh, which is to say all plant bombs at the same time. Boomerang hits an arms depot. Cold goes to a nuclear reactor. Heat wave to a dormant volcano. Mirror Master is going to an oil field, and Weather Wizard is going to go to an chemical dump. And these explosions turn out to be anything but tiny, and to actually wind up killing this fivesome of rogues. Wow. Caption reads, They had thought the explosions would be smaller, but then, that was precisely why Kadabra had chosen the rogues, wasn't it? That was their failing. They always thought small. And the rogues are torn apart by some very bright green light. Now, these explosions don't go unnoticed. We shift scenes to the Justice League satellite. At least I think it's a satellite. I, I, this, uh, this era of Justice League is a little uh, blind spotty for me. Yeah. <laughs> because this is that odd, like, post-Death of Superman, but pre-Morrison JLA yeah. team. So we got, we got like, core members like The Flash, Martian Manhunter, and, Mar- and Wonder Woman. But we also have Nuclon, the Crimson Fox, Fire, the Ray, Triumph, and Blue Devil. I don't think this is so Detroit, it's a very odd team. I'm not, yeah, no, I can guarantee. it's not. <laughs> they're, they're indoors somewhere. That's what yes. Uh, Blue Devil appears out of a window and feels like there might be a pattern to these explosions. Wonder Woman doesn't want to hear it. Yeah, Blue Devil goes, the fires. Do you see something odd about their pattern? And Wonder Woman says, I, no, nor could it possibly be that important right now. You know, I ask a simple question, right? Especially since when you think about it, he's right. 
Mm -hmm. Blue Devil traces the fires on the satellite window, and wouldn't you know it, they form a pentagram. Nah, nothing to see here, right? Eh, it's probably nothing. When you think about it, Blue Devil, he makes pentagrams, like, out of anything. You know, sure. he does ketchup <laughs> on his fries, it's a pentagram. It's every, all the time. <laughs> we shift scenes from here to meet our very uh, point-of-view character for this issue. This is a James Jesse, the trickster. And uh, we join him just as he's tricking a Chinese food delivery man out of a few bucks. Yeah, he's paying out some money, and he says, Two, three, say, what time you got? Six. Seven, eight, uh, and what time do you guys close? Eleven. Eleven, right. Twelve, and thirteen's the tip. Thanks! Jesse heads inside and up a flight of stairs, all the while malazing over what a loser he's become. Uh, at least he's still alive, though. He takes a look at the front page of the Keystone Courier and finds out that all his old running buddies and the rogues just bit the big one. We were the rogues, Gallery. We talked about being kings and toppling empires. Bragged about changing the world. So how do these five eulogies go? They knocked over jewelry stores and pestered the flash. All that potential. And they wasted it. I wasted it. Wasted it ringing bombs up the butts of rubber chickens. What was I thinking all those years? I'm not sure I want to know. Uh, now, uh, while Jesse chokes his troubles with some low main, we shift scenes down to Bell Rev, Louisiana. We meet a man who purchases a honey of a weapon that has some real oomph. He does so from a man named Deke before continuing his journey down the road. I love your technical gun talk. I'll tell you, that's really yes. fun. <laughs> now, inside Bell Rev prison, inmate Lou Krupke is escorted to the chaplain's office. He's been having problems, you see. A guard named Finney stole his Betty Grable calendar, and he wants it back. Oh, and also, he's not really speaking to the chaplain. We can see that the Bell Rev's father, Richard Kramer, is quite dead, just to the just out of view to our inmate. Yeah, the chaplain, who is definitely not the star, the, the villain of this uh, Megillah here in yeah. Iran, he's definitely not him, right? No. He goes... How badly do you want justice, Lou? And Lou replies, I'd sell me soul for it! Which is certainly a convenient thing to say, Lou. Very good. Yeah, and uh, the chaplain hands Lou a real honey of a weapon and goes... <laughs> With some good. oomph, right? Doesn't it have yes, some oomph on it? It right. does have some oomph, yes. Good. This is for you, then. But that gift isn't without some rules. No. All I ask is that you wait until precisely twelve. Precisely. I have a few things to put into motion first. Also, the uh, quote-unquote chaplain also appears to be the one who really stole that Betty Grable calendar in the first place, so it's all part of a grand plan. Mm. Now we're going to skip around to a few vignettes. First, we're going to meet a, a Bell Rev guard captain named Carl. He buys some suspicious white powder from a pusher on the street. Could it be cocaine? Well, yeah, that's oh. probably exactly what it is. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> next up, we meet a Bell Rev engineer named Simon, who's, quote, teaching his wife a lesson after having an argument with her uh, by uh, getting dr drunk and uh, carousing with some ladies at a bar. Oh, that's nice. Uh, third, Warden Crichton, who received a call that his perfect son is arrested for stealing a car. Point of this is, none of these men are where they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. We jump to midnight, and Lou Krupke takes aim and... Ah, fuck you, Finney! In addition to Fork and Finney, 
uh, Lou blows apart some of Bell Reb's, Bell Reb's turbines, which keep their superpowered inmates at bay. Uh-oh, Bell Reb's staff tries to call Simon. But he ain't home. Then the warden? But he's busy, too. And finally, the guard captain. Who actually sees Bell Rev go dark and decides to drive <laughs> as far away from the mess as possible. Uh, also worth noting, he's probably high on cocaine. That that added to it, but not, not a bad move by himself, I gotta say. The smartest guy here. Yeah. Uh, so inside, the inmates have been freed and the place is being destroyed. It's really quite the scene in there. Yes, the guard uh, guard goes, The cells! There's nothing to hold them in there! Ah! After messing the guards up, the villains all bust out, and back inside, poor Lou Krupke is among the casualties. Neron approaches his body. Hello, Lou. How was it? Was it as sweet as you'd hoped? Don't answer. The expression on your face says it all. Neron then collects what is. Our contract calls for a little something extra. After all, Lou, a deal is a deal. <laughs> and one week later, the trickster is out on the town with the Rainbow Raider. The latter has some information about a ripe armored car, 200 grand, ready for the picking. Only the trickster's not quite feeling it. He wants something more. So Rainbow Raider produces a box, and inside it is a candle. Yes, he goes, this candle was delivered to me. I, I don't know how. I don't know from where. I just got it. A lot of us did. Just after that Bell Rev thing last week, came with a note which explained that the candle, when lit at the stroke of midnight tonight, would open a door to fame, power, and glory. So Trickster takes the box to get a better look at the candle, and after dismissing it as mumbo-jumbo, he hands it back to the raider and leaves. Only, he swapped out the candle for a rubber chicken. Oh, that Trickster, uh, what are we gonna yeah. do with him? Goon, silly guy. All right. <laughs> and so we jump to midnight again. Uh, after a bit of debating, James Jesse lights the candle, and he's suddenly transported somewhere else, uh, and he's joined by many of DC's villainous movers and shakers, including Punch and Julie, even. Wow! That too? <laughs> uh, the trickster is approached by the prankster. The prankster goes, I'm a fan. I, I see you got a candle, too. We all did. Uh, pretty spooky, huh? Listen, I've been thinking lately. Uh, maybe we could join up. You could join up with me. Why? The All Losers Squad doesn't have enough members? Hey, is that a Marvel reference in our DC crossover mm, event? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. So Jesse turns the prankster down flat. Uh, he probably knows that I call him prankster, but half the time anyway, he yeah, doesn't want to make I, it even more confusing. I make that mistake all the time, yeah, constantly. <laughs> Uh, as Jesse takes inventory of the villains around him, we've got Crazy Quilt, Dr. Spectro, Metallo, Hellgramite, Killer Frost, Killer Moth, Blockbuster, Gorilla Grodd, Copperhead, Cheetah, Poison Ivy, Shrapnel, and then other less detailed baddies sort of going into the shadows in the background. Uh, and then the a Master of Ceremonies makes his appearance. Please allow me to introduce myself. I come to you with an irresistible offer. My name is Neron. And the fiddler is flabbergasted, probably because he was even included at all. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he whispers, Neron? Neron? Now, uh, some of the villains, they're not all that impressed, and so Neron presents his counsel, Abracadabra. Well, that don't impress him. Yeah, really. Cadabra says, trust him. You'll come away much richer for the experience. Neron's act is quite the crowd pleaser. I knew that from the moment he recruited me from beyond. 
Now, this actually does wind up creeping the trickster out a little bit. I'm not surprised if the whole scene is getting <laughs> weird over here. He thinks to himself in caption form, Cadabra, wow. I gotta say, my estimation of Neron just jumped up a notch if he's got Cadabra under his thumb. The rogues gallery never let Cadabra play its little reindeer games. We told each other it was because he was too pompous. In truth, it was because he frightened the heck out of us. We were a little nuts, but... Jeez, Kadabra was insane. Now, the last time we saw Abracadabra was during Zero Hour Crisis in Time number 4, September 1994 cover date, where he perished while the Flash ran real fast trying to destroy a rift in time. But Abracadabra ain't the only person that uh, Neron brought. No, we also have Lex Luthor who steps up and says, Kadabra speaks the truth. In fact, I owe my renewed health to Neron. When Kadabra presented himself as Neuron's associate, I was skeptical. Last time we saw Lex was during the fall of Metropolis, where he was trapped within his own cloned body. Also, we've got... Cersei the Sorceress. I mean, this is like an all-star celebrity mm-hmm. roast or something over here. <laughs> she says, As was I, but once Kadabra engineered his arrival on the plane, I saw in Neuron a being who could lead us all to greatness. Now, Cersei wasn't dead or trapped in a body before. She's just thrown in with Neron for increased magical power. Yeah, I mean, that's a good person to have in your corner in this kind of Probably. thing. Probably. And also, then... Dr. Polaris. And he goes, Indeed, he strides the earth like a giant, humbling the greatest among us while at the same time lifting us upward. Uh, Polaris agreed to Neron's deal in order to suppress his civilian personality, Neil Emerson. And he even used Emerson's soul as the bargaining chip. So, so talk about your devil's three-way. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and finally. <laughs> We've got the Joker, and he goes, and, and he can lumbata. One, two, three, four. Batman can be such a bore. Five, six, seven, eight. Help him meet his final fate. And the trickster thinks to himself, oh, oh, God. Good going, Neron. Pick a guy no one wants to be in the room with. When the villains want to scare each other, they tell Joker stories. And the Joker, Luther, all these guys work for Neron? Who is this guy? By the way, a lambada is the forbidden dance from Brazil made popular in the United States by the 1990 films of the same names. Which is to say, yes, there was both a lambada movie and a The Forbidden Dance movie that both opened on the same day. Yeah, March 16th, 1990 was a big day for dancing. Maybe the biggest, and amazingly, that was also the day that the Lombada craze concluded. So uh, I, don't know, I don't know if that was a coincidence or correlation, but that was interesting. Uh, so <laughs> with the village suitably uh, impressed, or at least, you know, disturbed into silence, uh, Neron starts with the pontificating. Listen to me. There is no fiercer hell than failure. I have summoned each of you for a reason, for you each have something in common. Each of you has been given, gifted with a power or cunning that, you'll forgive me, you've squandered. Please, I mean no disrespect. Your labors are legendary, your efforts most impressive. Still, for years, Earth's costume champions have so easily held you in check, stolen your dreams, beaten you down. I'm here to change that. So he offers the villains their greatest dreams, but naturally, they all come with a price. I ask but a small item in return. Something meaningless to you. Something you cannot hold, or taste, or touch. 
something that isn't yours forever anyway. Call it a vapor. Call it a spirit. Or call it a soul. Well, that <laughs> changes things. Uh, but before anyone can answer, Mongol makes it clear that he isn't happy being referred to as a failure. And just like any big bad who meets the hot new big bad, he gets his butt kicked very handily. <laughs> Indeed, Neron like, just wipes the floor with him without even breaking a sweat. Yeah, he even pontificates more while he's beating down, him down yeah. <laughs> he, He's actually dressing him down. He, a conqueror who has ruled a thousand worlds. A genocidal savage who has laid waste to ten thousand more. A gale force barbarian who has had the pleasure of grinding both Superman and Green Lantern beneath his boot heel. You are no threat to me. Remember, now Mongol was part of the whole Coast City Goes Boom thing during the reign of the Superman. Uh, we talk about that in great length during our four-part Death and Return of Superman series, which is available in the archives. So then Neron kills Mongol and forcibly takes his soul. The end. Yes. <laughs> At this point, several of the baddies decide to nope on out and <laughs> extinguish their candles. Uh, <laughs> Neron doesn't appear to have any ill will towards them for turning them down, though he does refer to their lives as petty and pathetic. So maybe there, maybe there are a little bit of hard feelings. Yeah, you know, they didn't take his timeshare deal, so he's you know he's a little salty about <laughs> You're it. You're dead to me. Exactly. <laughs> now uh, Jesse James is uh, just about to extinguish his candle when he sees Neron in action. He takes the feeble-minded blockbuster and transforms him into the big-brained kingpin who would actually get killed in that issue of Nightwing we discussed back in episode 98 of the Cosmic Treadmill in our archives. Uh, then Copperhead, Killer Moth, and a bunch of others get some pretty awful makeovers as well, but hopefully into relevance is what they're hoping. <laughs> Neron says, Congratulations, each of you has seized your destiny. Use your power well and wisely, and the world is yours. I ask but one final thing of you. I mean, their mortal souls isn't enough. You just what, just changing the deal in the mid midstream. That's not what you can't do that. Yeah, the smaller print under the small print. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Don't forget the anger and the humiliation you've endured at the hands of the superhumans. Pull it up again. Feel it burn. Take that rage and that fury and pay it back. Find the superhumans and find vengeance. Now take the lightsaber and strike me down with all of your hatred. Okay. Uh, so James Jesse mulls it over and goes to extinguish his flame, only Neron beats him to it. <laughs> Trickster says, He creates Sweeps Week, the underworld, and then asks why, and then asks everyone just to kick butt. That's all. Unlikely, isn't it? Ah, I, hi, I, I know I'm kind of an uninvited guest. Oh, are you, James? Or is it possible that I expected you to trick yourself into an invitation? Really? How well do you think a paramecium like the Rainbow Raider would fit in here? So, by the way, Sweeps Week refers to four separate four-week-long periods throughout the year when advertisers gauge television ratings to set their rates and distribution. So, nothing like this then, right? I don't really see the uh, connection, yeah. quite frankly, yeah. but all right, that's fine there, uh, Trickster. So, Neron then adds another guest to the proceedings, the Justice League's own Blue Devil. Yeah, he appears through a portal and goes, where am I? What's going on here? And Trickster freaks out, thinking this has been a sting all along. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> you, know, you really think they're going to use the... This was all, this was all a, a ruse to, to get you caught by Blue Devil, you know? We, we brought all of the villains to hell and, you know, murdered Mongol before your eyes so that we could arrest you. 
Just to get, yeah, it's like we're going to have Chris Hansen stepping behind a curtain <laughs> yeah, or something. have now. a seat, you know. <laughs> Neron explains, Mr. Cassidy has come to explore a new opportunity. True? Maybe. I take it from your message that you have something to say to me. And that something will be revealed in future chapters of Underworld Unleashed, and they'll be handled by the other folks that are in mm-hmm. hashtag the best event ever and will be or hashtag just best event ever, sorry. Yes. And uh, we'll be detailing them in the second half of our show, which will come right after this short break. Have you ever wanted to be more than you are? Are you worried your full potential isn't enough? Ever wonder finding that out is worth your soul? Best Event Ever is back for 2018 with DC's 1995 event, Underworld Unleashed. Several blogs and podcasts are coming together to examine the effects these questions have on the heroes and villains of the DC Universe. Join Justice's First Dawn, Comic Reviews by Walt, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Pop Culture Palace, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and Between the Pages, among others, as they examine the effects these questions have on characters like Ted Knight, Blue Devil, Sentinel, The Martian Manhunter, and Darkseid. Follow them all using hashtag BestEventEver2018 and hashtag UnderworldReUnleashed across social media all throughout October. Go ahead. Blow out that candle. Neron is waiting. Welcome back, best event everers. <laughs> We're going to finish up uh, our uh, creator bios here, uh, what they did after this issue of Underworld Unleashed. We're going to start with Mark Wade. Uh, Ralph Macchio and Mark Gruenwald over at Marvel would hire Wade as Gruenwald's successor as the writer on Captain America, uh, during which Wade would be paired with the artist Ron Garney. Their critically beloved run ended when Heroes Reborn happened to us. Uh, Rob Liefeld of Heroes Reborn offered Wade the opportunity to script Captain America over plots and artwork by his studio. Wade declined. No, that's not really his style, I think. Uh, Wade and Garney returned to the title for another relaunch series, Captain America Volume 3, issues number 1 through 23. Famously, he left after butting heads with editorial over the content of issue 14. This was a story focusing on Red Skull, and changes were made to some of the verbiage he used, which could be viewed as lessening their impact. Mark states, Despite what the error of having my, my name on the cover might imply, the contents of Captain America number 14 aren't my work. The majority of the image descriptions and many of the early captions are my writing, but weeks after my story received approval for Marvel's editor-in-chief, and after the book was subsequently lettered, colored, read, and approved by several editors, separated, and made ready to print, that same editor-in-chief decided, as within his rights, yet despite previous approvals, to have the story completely altered and substantially rewritten, dropping entire sequences and pages and assigning several other pages to staffers to re-dialogue from scratch. As a result, what was printed isn't even close to the story I set out to tell nor was I asked for input in any of the alterations made. 
It is absolutely within Marvel's editorial right to make any and all changes to work for hire as they see fit, and I in no way challenge that right. They buy it, it's theirs to do with as they wish, with or without my input. It's upsetting and warrants the removal of my name only when Marvel's editors renege on prior, prior approvals without warning and do so while delivering to me a lecture as if I'd done Marvel an injustice by writing an approved story instead of even the vaguest hint of an apology or regret. To leave my name on a story no longer mine cheats the readers and cheats me, hence my insistence at distancing myself from the final printed version. Whew. Marvel mm. removed his name from the credits, however, neglected to take it off the cover. Mm-hmm. Back over at DC in 1996, Wade and the artist Alex Ross produced the graphic novel Kingdom Come. And you know, it was a pretty big deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wade would write the, fi- the follow-up to it called The Kingdom. Uh, DC Comics writer and executive Paul Levitt says, Wade's deep knowledge of the hero's past served them well, and Ross's unique, unique painted art style made a powerful statement about the reality of the world they built. Uh, a little while later at DC, October 6, 1998. This was the day that the Superman 2000 pitch was made. And we're mentioning this because of Wade's involvement. Mm-hmm. Now, Wade, along with Grant Morrison, Tom Payer, and Mark Miller, offered a pitch to DC in order to revamp Superman, noting that of late there had been a reimagining of the character just about every 15 years. 15 years before this was Burns' Man of Steel. 15 years before that was Denny O'Neill's Kryptonite Nevermore. Which didn't stick, uh, but okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> neither, neither, neither did Crisis, post-Crisis, so there you go. <laughs> now, uh, in this, Superman's power and intelligence would return to his pre-Crisis levels on account of have him having spent so many years absorbing yellow solar energy. Uh, Clark Kent would become more of a mask for Superman. He'd get a new fortress of solitude, and Superman returns to being a scientist of sorts and a collector. Many trophies will be kept in that fortress. Luther revealed to be more of the more than meets the eye in this version. Lex Luther is pretty much his secret identity, and Lex Corp is only one of a thousand things he attends to every day. And uh, Superman's villains would have also been been reimagined. Yes, uh, Lois and Clark's marriage would go away, uh, and Lois would also no longer know the secret. Uh, later, this was later altered to have Lois moved into a position of uh, foreign correspondent in order to separate the two. Uh, Jonathan Kent would die. Martha would be widowed uh, because, quote, Superman needs a little bit of tragedy here. Uh, the Daily Planet is no longer a newspaper and has more of an Internet presence. He'd have a trunkless costume and the pitch actually said... Red underpants. Why do we hate comics so much? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, triangle numbering would go away. Uh, there's a weird comics history in the works about the whole Superman 2000 Michigas, so stay tuned to, for more on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is interesting, though, like some of that did get Im- uh, employed Eventually. later on, yeah. but a, much of it didn't. So a writer, Wade and writer Grant Morrison collaborated on a number of projects that would successfully reestablish DC's Justice League to prominence. Wade wrote JLA near year one, as well as chunks of the regular JLA series. And he also developed the concept of hypertime with Morrison, which pretty much is everything in the 21st century in DC is, is yep. based around that. Uh, Wade was barred from working for Marvel for a time in 2000 after writing some disparaging comments about Bob Harris on a message board. To CBR, uh, comicbookresources.com, Mark commented, yeah, that's at least temporarily true. Apparently, the fact that Bob was fired for unfair and wrong reasons one September, rather than for all the tens of hundreds of right reasons he'd racked up in the seven years previous, gave a lot of staffers a sudden change of heart. 
amazing. Overnight, they forgot what a two-faced, cowardly liar Bob had been, and what crap they'd all had to suffer through because of his shortcomings as a manager. Instead, everyone was lighting candles for Bob. Jesus. You want to know the truth? In my humble <coughs> opinion, Bob did as much to help destroy the comic book industry during the 1990s than any other single human being alive. Yes, even more than Garib. I'd even let Ron Perlman out of hell before I'd pardon Bob. For years and years and years, the editorial philosophy at Marvel was to make each and every comic book as labyrinthine and confusing as creatively possible. Marvel had the single highest profile comic book in the Western Hemisphere, X-Men, and Bob did everything imaginable to make it completely incomprehensible and inaccessible to new and or casual readers. Everything, everything. But Mark, I hear the whine. But Mark. Bob kept the X-Books bestsellers in the industry during his tenure. Technically true, but let's look at the sales figures. Over the last six years, the sales margin between the X-Books and their nearest competitors has dwindled from about 3 to 1 to barely 1.5 to 1. Woohoo! Cigars, everyone. Here it is in a nutshell. Did you see in that stupefyingly atrocious piece-of-crap X-Men sampler comic and TV guide? My rage had no words. It was a textbook example of how not to write and draw something a prospective first-time reader could possibly understand or enjoy or want to see more of. Hell, I've been reading comics for 34 years, and I had to read it three times to figure out what was going on. TV Guide. Eight million households. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for new market exposure. And everyone connected with it failed miserably. Fire them. Fire them all. We're dying here. We cannot afford to blow any opportunity to find new readers. He's a soft-spoken guy. Yeah, really. He doesn't really come down too hard, though. I like that. No, no. But that, that TV guide was a big mess. No, uh, that, I don't that's... remember that at all, but I think by that time, you know, TV guide. It was, no it was in collaboration with the—it was when the movie was coming out. They put it in the uh, TV guide just to, as a sampler, like sure. he says. And it was just—I'd I, been an X-Men fan forever, and— <laughs> It's like I was lost in it. I mean, to, to me, what I would have done there is I would have put a, you know, a, a snippet of a of a Claremont Byrne, Claremont Cockrum X-Men, you know what I mean? That, Some, that, yeah, something you it, can follow, something that where they name each other, they, right. they name their powers instead of, and I think it was a, I think Claremont actually wrote this, but this was, you know, post-2000 Claremont, which was so a many totally characters. different animal. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it just, in the 90s, it came to a point with the X-Men, and we saw that definitely when we did Age of Apocalypse, where it was like, yeah. I'm never going to keep, and all these characters are named the same thing, too, like, almost <laughs> very close, similar, or sometimes yep. exactly the same. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I gotta say, I kind of understand where Wade is coming from, although, Absolutely. you know, we're all doing the best we can, guy. You know what I mean? What do you want me to tell you? But anyway. <laughs> this is true. We'll jump up to the year 2000. Uh, Wade wrote a story, uh, a series called Empire with Barry Kitson, which was originally published by Guerrilla Comics. Now, Guerrilla was an imprint of Image Comics formed by Kurt Busiek, Tom Grummet, Stuart Immonen, Carl Kiesel, Barry Kitson, George Perez, Mark Wade, and Mike Waringo. The imprint folded after only two issues were published. Empire would be completed under DC Comics the under under the DC Comics label in 2003 and 2004. Uh, the rights would revert to Wade and Kitson in 2014, and the series returned under Wade's own thrill bent imprint for uh, IDW Publishing. That was an uh, Empire Uprising. It was a four issue limited series that ran cover dates April through July 2015. 
Uh, Wade would begin an acclaimed run as the writer of Marvel's Fantastic Four in 2002 with Mike Waringo. Uh, Marvel released their debut issue, which is Fantastic Four Volume 3, Number 60, October 2002 cover date, at the promotional price of nine cents. Yeah. Per Comicron.com, that issue shipped 752,699 copies. Wow. So, a lot of copies. Now, by June 2003, Marvel publisher Bill Jemis tried to convince Wade to, inban- to abandon his high-adventure approach to the series and make the book into, in Wade's words, a wacky suburban dramedy where Reed's a nutty professor who creates amazing but impractical inventions. Sue is the office temp breadwinner. The cranky neighbor is their new archenemy, etc. It really is like, sounds like Fantastic Four meets Marvel or something, right? It, it's definitely a, gem- a Jemis original. <laughs> a Jemis sure. uh, take on it. Yeah. So, after some discussion with editor Tom Brevoort, Wade found a way to make the requested changes, but by then, the decision had been made by Vice President Bill Jemis to fire Wade and Waringo from the series. Years later, Mark had this to say, Brevoort and I were just gobsmacked by this, just speechless, and there was no arguing with Bill. He wanted the mundane four because they'd be more relatable. But... He was the boss, and Marvel owns the characters, not me, so we actually took a stab at trying to give Bill what we thought he wanted without destroying the FF. We planned a story arc in which Reed had been forced to brainwash the entire family, including himself, into this basic scenario for reasons I forget. It was actually a pretty elegant workaround. I can't remember the details, but I promise it was better than it sounds. But Bill decreed that it was too little, too late. Three days later, it was too late. And one Friday, poor Brevoort called me to, to tell me that I didn't have to bother with the next script because Bill had already written it himself and dropped it off on his desk. Uh, I was fired, I know. Uh, <laughs> that's like the worst call for Brevoort to make, worst thing for Jemis to do. It was bad all around. Uh, yes. He goes on to say, I had never been fired off an assignment before. I was stunned. Artist Mike Waringo asked if he'd stick around, was asked if he'd stick around, but in a gesture I thanked him for till the day he died. He told Jemis to take a hike. The resulting fan backlash led to Wade and Ringo's, Waringo's reinstatement on the title by that September. The announced incoming Fantastic Four writer Robert Aguirre Sacasa was shifted over to his own Fantastic Four title under the Marvel Knights imprint. So they're making things very simple for yeah. people already. Uh, that had the inspired title of Marvel Knights 4. House of Ideas, cranking them out. Uh, In 2003, back across the street, uh, Wade wrote the origin of the modern Superman with Superman Birthright that had art by Lionel Lionel Francis Yu. And this would go on to be the standing origin for the Man of Steel for an entire three years. Because Jeff Johns would then tell his secret origin. Of course, which superseded everything, right? Yes. Uh, Wade returned to writing The Legion of Superheroes in December 2004, teaming again with Barry Kitson. He'd uh, actually be the editor-writer for Legion of Superheroes during the 80s. Uh, he finished the, his run with issue number 30, that had a July 2007 cover date, and that's, uh, that's another one where uh, Jeff Johns kind of did something to him there. He, uh, he brought the Legion back in a Superman story. And it was a different Legion mm. as, the, as the book that was coming out every month. It's sort of Jeff John's thing. You notice that he doesn't really <laughs> seem to care about what other, what else is going on around him. 
This is true. Uh, we have Mark. Uh, he had uh, also been writing the Victorian detective story called Ruse for CrossGen Comics, and they went bankrupt in 2004. Uh, he had this to say in 2009. This is Mark, of course. He says, CrossGen publisher Mark Alessi was a spoiled eight-year-old with a checkbook, and he was the biggest bully I've ever met in my life. And coming from a lifelong comic book geek, that's one hell of an indictment. I can make a fortune charging his employees for post-traumatic stress syndrome therapy. He would, and I'm not joking, make admittedly spineless, grown men stand in the corner when they displeased him. He'd punish guys who drew perfectly well without his help by focusing on some detail or another on one of the 22 pages. Some face had somehow wasn't exactly what he saw in his head, whatever the hell that was, by berating them at the top of his lungs and sending them home for the day. And don't come back till you can draw it right. Unbelievable. Uh, wow. We could almost do an episode of, like, just cruel people in comics, you know, thinking of, like, more Weisinger and other other mean yeah, stories a, like that. This Alessi was like a, he was like a money mark, you know? He, He's he, a... Yeah. Such a, yeah, it seems like a real sleaze. Uh, yes. So, in 2005, Wade signed a two-year exclusive contract with DC Comics. He co-wrote the fifty, the limited series fifty-two with Grant Morrison, Jeff Johns, Greg Rucka, and Keith Giffen. Years later, Mark would say of fifty-two, the biggest challenge of fifty-two was actually wisely kept from us by editor Steve Wacker, editor in chief Dan DiDio, who had first championed the concept, hated what we were doing. H-A-T-E-D-52. He would storm up and down the halls telling everyone how much he hated it. And Steve, God bless him, kept us out of the loop on that particular drama. Editor Michael Siglain, having less seniority, was was less able to do so. And there's one issue of 52 near the end that was written almost totally by Dan and Keith Giffen because none of the writers could plot it to Dan's satisfaction. Which was, and is his prerogative as editor-in-chief, but man... There's little more demoralizing than taking the ball down to the one-yard line and being benched by the guy who kept referring to Countdown as 52 done right. Uh, 50, uh, Countdown was great, though, right? Someday we, we, we may that, do. Right? Someday, I'll say, I'll say <laughs> oh. one day we'll certainly do 52. We may do Countdown. I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> It's possible. Now, uh, after this, he would do a short run on The Brave and the Bold with George Perez, and he would also return to The Flash for six issues. Mark says, Once I committed to the project and we'd solicited the first issue, before even one script was finished, every single promise that had been made to me to get me back on board was reneged upon. So integrity and backbone demanded I quit on principle before the first issue even came out. The only reason I stayed six was because of my loyalty to my editor, who didn't deserve to be screwed. At this point, Wade fairly well stopped working for DC. Yeah. Uh, He would begin his series Irredeemable for Boom Comics, where he would become their editor-in-chief in in 2007, and then their chief creative officer in 2010. And then he would step down from that uh, about four months (laughs) later to go back to freelance writing only. What a whirlwind. He just rose through the ranks and... Yeah, it's a rolling dervish. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mark started up the digital-only site Thrillbent.com in 2012, beginning with his follow-up to Irredeemable, titled Insufferable. Also in 2013, after famously having addressed the crowd at the 2010 Harvey Awards about digital comics replacing print, Mark walked back his comments. He wrote several years ago at a conference for comic book publishers and industry stalwarts, when comicsology was still an upstart and iPads were still a toy, I came out aggressively against the old ways. I wasn't the first to do so, but I am loud. I railed hard against uh, hard that we should be turning our attention to the emerging digital market, and that as an industry, we couldn't continue to be held hostage by our only significant print distributor. 
America's 1,800 maybe comic specialty stores. I argued that tablets and smartphones were the new newsstand, the new outreach tool. As the vast majority of publishers and retailers turned on me for preaching heresy and descended upon me like a fat kid in a chocolate cake, I maintained that the old ways were doomed to die more quickly than we could imagine, and that the future of the comics medium hinged on digital distribution. And you know what? I was wrong. In all honesty, the old ways weren't doomed. Had you told me three years ago that comic sales in America would be up by significant numbers when all other forms of print media were shedding readers at a brutal pace, I'd have been the one to call you a heretic. Yet here we are. This was around the time he became a editor of something, right? Was uh, it Alter Ego? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe, I don't know if he jumped on. Oh, no, I think we talked about it here. He bought a uh, comic store. That's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, we mentioned before that Wade stopped working with DC around 2007 over those increasing editorial pro- problems, uh, primarily with Dan DiDio. Uh, from here, he would move out to Marvel, and he would have runs on Amazing Spider-Man, The Avengers, Daredevil, and at present, uh, Captain America and Doctor Strange. So, you know, like, uh, let's face it, you know, Mark writes whatever he likes, <laughs> but he probably won't be working for DC anytime soon since the deal is still there and uh, Bob Harris is still their editor. Editor in chief, and that's the, I think that's unforgivable. And actually, the uh, the store that he's part owner of, that's why we thought it's, it's Alter Ego in Muncie, Indiana. That's, that's right. So that's, that's what he right. did. Uh, we'll hop across the table here and wrap up Howard Porter. Following Underworld Unleashed, Porter received the gig many people best remember him for, and this is penciling the Grant Morrison Helm JLA. Howard drew issues 1 through 7, 10 through 16, 18, 19, 22 through 25, 28 through 31, 34, 36 through 41, and 43 through 45 of that series. So he stuck around for a while and did most of the work. He, he from, did, uh, did most of it. The, the yeah. lion's share, without a doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. From uh, 1996 <laughs> to 2000, it was more than likely going to be him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those later issues had him back with his Underworld Unleashed partner, Mark Wade. So how about that? <laughs> uh, in 2003, he would again join Wade, uh, this time across the street at Marvel, where he would draw an arc of Fantastic Four. That was issues 503 through 508. Back over at DC, Howard would have a few brief runs on The Flash. This is during that Jeff Johns era. In 2006, Howard provided not only pencils, but all of the art, including some amazing paintwork that you've got to see to believe, on the Trials of Shazam miniseries spitting out of DC's post-Infinite Crisis Brave New World, written by Judd Winnick. It was during this time that Porter suffered an accident. He explains to Newsarama in a piece dated October 2nd, 2008, I cut my thumb on broken glass. The kind of long version is, a friend of mine came over on a Sunday, and I was trying to cheer him up because he was down. So I said to him and my wife, let's make some steaks. I'll make some martinis and we'll watch a movie. But when I was making a martini, the shaker broke. The martini shaker we had was glass with a metal top. So when I put the top on it, the glass shattered and my hand came down on all the broken glass. Now, how this uh, affected his ability to uh, to finish Trials of Shazam as intended, he would say, It started out okay, but then the pressures of having to produce in that format were pretty overwhelming. The task of doing all the art and the deadlines without the inker and colorist, it was tough. And the injury didn't help, obviously. I ended up having to get someone to help me with the colors. I was working in a cast. My whole hand was in a cast. Wow. Yeah, uh, he tur- he explains exactly what the injury entailed. Also, he says it turned out I severed the nerve and almost the entire tendon. There was a little tendon still hanging on. 
so I had to have an operation to repair all that. And in the meanwhile, I have no feeling on the inside of my thumb. I cut the nerve that goes to the side of my thumb that would hold a pencil, so I have no feeling there. Porter was initially told that he'd be back to 100% in six months. When six months of physical therapy resulted in a still numb thumb, he quit drawing. In January, in January 2008, he'd take a job as a school bus driver. After a while, he started bringing a sketchbook with him to work and trained himself to draw with his pencil between his index and middle fingers until the feeling started to return in his thumb. Wild. Yeah. Um, in the summer of 2008, he would receive a call from Mike Collin about a Johnny Quest book that had been an on-again, off-again project at DC Comics, and it uh, looks like this one actually never did come out. Uh, but this would lead to Howard being offered a gig on DC Decisions. <laughs> Which is a miniseries that we'll never, ever, ever talk about. Uh, Now, while dipping his toe back into the comics field, Porter kept his gig as a school bus driver, you know, just in case. Sure. Uh, 2009-2010 saw Howard draw both the Magog and the Doc Savage series for DC Comics. In 2011, he drew the DC Universe Online Legend series, which was based on the uh, MMORPG. In 2012, Porter drew Superman Beyond, which was a spinoff of Batman Beyond. He would go on to join Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus in the creation of Justice League 3000, later Justice League 3001. He would also join them both on Larflees and Scooby Apocalypse. I'd say he was the highlight of Scooby Apocalypse. Uh, and Larflees <laughs> Larf- 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 as well. Right? <laughs> now, uh, currently, Howard draws alternating arcs of Flash, including the very recent Flash War arc. Yeah, uh, just two things. I remember when that Justice League 3000 came out, it was first... Promoted as McGuire, but he yeah. found out it wasn't him, like through the news or through I think through the actual solicitor, website or something, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, <laughs> so that was a crazy thing. But uh, also Howard Porter, you know, he's a great artist. But when you look at his art prior to his accident to now, and of course it's been a number of years, so that it would be, sure. but it's a really whole different and super unique style. You know, you could certainly you could pick out a Howard Porter's art from it doesn't look like anyone else's, and it really is. Great for certain characters. Flash is a great one. Uh, he, he he does great work. Uh, that's all I want to say. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, we wanted to talk about other instances. You know, Neron in Underworld Unleashed, and then later on he's in the DCU. He's sort of definitely one of DC's Satans, right? Yeah. Uh, allegories for Satan. So we wanted to, to look at other times Satan had popped up or... Types of Satans. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> anybody who wants to buy souls. Essentially, yeah. Who deals in souls. If you yeah. want to buy souls, you live in a real <laughs> hot place. You're pretty much you're pretty much Satan. You know, we're you not gonna Satan. really hang it on. So really quick and just for our purposes, Satan is an entity in the Abrahamic religions that seduces humans to into sin or falsehood. Uh, there is a whole bit about fallen angels and a wrathful God, but the bits of Satan we're interested in are where he makes deals and tortures people. That's the crux of it. Uh, The legend of Faust recorded in the 1589 chapbook The History of the Damnable Life and the Deserved Death of Dr. John Faustus by an unknown author concerns a pact allegedly made by the German scholar Johann Jörg Faust with a demon named Mephistopheles that was to sell his soul to Satan in exchange for 24 years of earthly pleasure. And this is the basis for much of our modern conception of Satan, a guy you make a bad deal with, right? A, yeah. a unwinnable deal is the idea. So now on to the comics. Uh, in Dream of the Rabbit Fiend, that was a newspaper comic uh, strip by American cartoonist Windsor McKay. It ran two or three times a week from 1904 to 1911. It would return for a couple of short sporadic bursts here and there until 1925. Literally, there would be like 
it would appear in the paper one day. I don't know why things were so weird, loosey goosey. Yeah. You could just do a strip of whatever you felt like. <laughs> so each self-contained strip was about someone suffering a terrible nightmare after having eaten rare bit. In the last panel, they'd be awakened in shock, tangled in their bed sheets, lamenting having eaten that rare bit. And a rare bit is a Welsh recipe involving a cheese sauce thinned with ale, which is then served on toast with cayenne pepper. It is not known to induce nightmares, but whatever. Maybe indigestion, I don't that, know. That's, I think that's the kind of nightmare mm. I'd be worried about. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, McKay would produce over 300 of these scripts, these strips, uh, 29 in color, but the one that we're interested in ran on December 12, 1904. A, a person gets into an automobile accident and assumes that he's on his way to heaven. Turns out he's he's heading to the other place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy checking him into hell could be Satan. Uh, there's also a horned fellow that pitchforks the person into a mass of molten cheese. Uh, this strip was partially dramatized in the short seven-minute film called Dream of a Rare Bit Fiend by Edwin S. Porter, and that came out in 1906. I'm pretty sure that's public domain. You can go see that on YouTube. Maybe we'll uh, I bet. slap that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll throw it in the notes, yeah. Uh, Madame Satan, originally named Tyra, first appeared in Pep Comics number 16, June 1941, cover date by Abner Sundell and Harry Lucy. Uh, Tyra weds a wealthy, wealthy man for his money, and when the man's parents figure it out, she poisons them and tosses them off a cliff. With hmm. their dying breaths, they reveal Tyra's evil plans to their sons. To their son, when he confronts Tyra, there's a struggle. He lands on a knife and dies. Satan likes the cut of her jib and calls her spirit down to hell in order to imbue Tyra with a deadly kiss, the power of teleportation, and a new name, Madame Satan. Uh, she also has a new human identity for some reason, Iola, who looks exactly like Tyra. I don't. I guess maybe they felt like, let's get her, you know, let's cover up that murder, multiple murders <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Uh, when she reveals her evil Madame Satan self, however, she's got a skull face with skulls for eyes. And her character ran in her own chapter from issues 16 to 21 of Pep Comics, and then she was booted to make way for a certain redheaded teenage punk and his loser friends. I don't know where that yeah. went, but whatever. That sounds like something that wouldn't make it. No, probably yeah. not. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Freddie Freeman, he tangled with a villain that had the power of Satan and uh, five other demons. This was in Captain Marvel Jr. number 4, February 1948, not, sorry, 1943, by Otto Binder and Al Serino. Uh, this issue introduced Sabic, the reverse Captain Marvel. Marvel, who activated his powers by saying his name, invoking Satan, Aim, Belial, Beelzebub, Asmodeus, and Cradius. Uh, another more beastly version of Sabic shows up in Outsiders, Volume 3, Number 8, which was written by Judd Winnick with art by Tom Rainey, but he's essentially got the same shtick. Yeah, he's, he's in the DC pantheon if they, if they ever want to drag him out again. He's, yeah, he's ready and willing. <laughs> uh, Hot Stuff, The Little Devil is a character created by Warren Kremer for Harvey Publications, first appearing in Hot Stuff, Number 1. October 1957 cover date. Uh, this is the scariest one yet. Oh, he's a spooky guy, yeah. yep. He's a little devil wearing an asbestos diaper. <laughs> Looks kind of like Casper the Friendly Ghost in devil form and red. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to the consternation of his demonic brothers, Hot Stuff likes to perform acts of goodness. But he, he does it just to cheese off other demons. That's one thing I like about him. He, he doesn't do it out of innate goodness. He's just, like, mischievous <laughs> like that. Yep. Uh, Jimmy Olsen meets Lucifer and Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 65, December 1962, cover date, by Robert Bernstein and John Forte. Here, Jimmy Olsen eats too much cake at a bake-off contest and has a nightmare that he's on Devil's Island and must sell his soul to Lord L in order to escape. 
It's later revealed in the series Sandman that Lord L was indeed Lucifer Morningstar, and we'll get to him in a little bit. We got Betty and Veronica number 75 from March 1963 by Frank Doyle and Dan DiCarlo. In that, Betty tries to sell her soul to a Mr. Inferno in order to gain Archie's affections. This deal goes sour when it's revealed that Veronica made the very same deal with Mr. Inferno years earlier. Which is uh, why Archie has always preferred Veronica to Betty, if, if only slightly. I mean, that Archie must be some stud boy, let me tell you. I bet. <laughs> He's got that jalopy and everything. Uh, <laughs> now, Satan gets married in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 103, August 1970, covered it by Robert Kaniger and Kurt Swan. Though, in this case, Satan turns out to be an alien from a planet of constant fire where people have horns and hooves. He marries Lois and keeps her on his planet for a while, then sends her back to Earth. Uh, but that, yeah, that's Satan enough for us, so thanks, right? Yeah, you got the horns, you got the, the fire. Horns. That's that's good yeah. enough. That does it. Uh, now, Marvel Comics' main stand-in for Satan is Mephisto, created by Stan Lee and John Buscema, first appearing in the Silver Surfer number 3, December 1968 cover date. He's inspired by Mephistopheles of the Faust legend, and claims to have been created, along with many other demons, by the supreme being whose suicide resulted in the creation of the Marvel Universe, as well as the Infinity Gems. He's always trying to cut one-sided deals with various Marvel characters. In his first appearance, he offers Norrin Rad untold riches and a wife in exchange for his mortality. Uh, Norrin doesn't bite. He doesn't go for it. Perhaps most famously, though, Mephisto was featured in Amazing Spider-Man number 545, January 2008 covered eight by J. Michael Straczynski and Joe Quesada, concluding the One More Day storyline. In that, Spidey makes a deal with Mephisto to save his Aunt May's life in exchange for, in exchange for a ret- retcon of several pertinent details, including <laughs> the erasure of his marriage to Mary Jean. I wonder what he wanted his marriage for. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, uh, Marvel may not have an actual Satan, but they do have a Damien Hellstrom, the son of Satan. It was created by Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich, first appeared in Ghost Rider number 1, September 1973, cover date. Born in the fictional town of Greentown, Massachusetts, Damien is the son of Marduk Kurios and a mortal woman named Victoria Wingate, who was driven mad upon learning the true identity of the father of her children, and consequently lost custody of them. Uh, more on Marduk Kurios in a minute. Uh, Damien was trained in the art of black magic by his father, but after being raised by Jesuits, he clung to his human side and would become a hero. Not so for his sister Satana, who you might realize has different ideas, considering <laughs> her name is Satana, that says a lot. Uh, she first appeared in Vampire Tales number 2, October 1973, by Roy Thomas and John Ramita Sr. While Damien was raised by humans, Satana was raised by demons in hell. They call her a succubus, but she's essentially Lady Satan. She tricks dudes into giving up their souls. What else do you want out of a Satan? Yeah. And uh, Marta Curios is a demon character created by Gary Friedrich and Herb Trimp- Trimpy, who fir- first appearing in Marvel Spotlight number 13, January 1974, covered eight, and was identified there as Satan. He was later retconned to be Marta Curious. Basically, Marvel Comics has several of these demon characters that play at Satan. Uh, we say if you come from a dimension of fire and torture, like we say, and you're pre- prepared to make deals for souls, that's your Satan. I don't care what your name is. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing Satan's work. That's all that is. That's a fact. Uh, now, DC Comics brought out the fancy name Satan, uh, Lucifer Samael Morningstar, 
First appeared in Sandman number four, uh, April 1989 cover date by Neil Gaiman and Sam Keith. Uh, The story of this Lucifer follows the actual biblical origin pretty closely, except that in the Sandman comic book, he abdicates his throne and heads to the mortal world and opens a nightclub. Uh, He would eventually have his own series, which ran for 75 issues between June of 2000 and August 2006, written mostly by uh, Mike Carey. And uh, there's another one coming out uh, that's very right, nice. very soon. Yeah. I think uh, the Halloween week, as yeah. I recall, definitely this month. So uh, we'll see what that's about. Now, uh, not content to have merely one Satan, of course, and Marvel's got all those Satans. Uh, <laughs> another pair of sibling Satans were created by Brett Breeding, Blaze and Satanus, appearing in DC Comics. Blaze the first appeared in Action Comics number 655, July 1990, cover date by Roger Stern and Bob McCloud. Uh, she's Metropolis nightclub owner Angelica Blaze in her human guise, but really she's all about stealing souls. I mean, your last name's Blaze. Yeah, that's a bad one, I gotta say. Yeah. You really could have <laughs> Smith? Uh, any any yeah. name would do better. Maybe it's pronounced Blase. Blase, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Satanus first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 493. That came with an August 1992 cover date by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. He pretends to be the owner of Newstime magazine Colin Thornton, who had hired Clark Kent, but also loves grabbing souls. Uh, Blaze and Satanus regularly go at each other for ownership of hell, or I guess they're right to be next in line for the ownership of hell. Yeah. Uh, the two of them pop up now and again and are figured prominently in the Rain and Hell miniseries, which ran eight issues from September 2008 through April 2009 cover dates, plus a preview issue that August by Keith Giffen, Tom Derenick, and Bill Sienkiewicz. In it, Blaze and Satanus revolt against Neron, and there's a great battle in hell involving the DCU's dark characters, plus some other superheroes and villains, and uh, Blaze is ultimately victorious. Yeah, and I, have, I don't know when the last time we saw Blaze is, but she's someone you see in Superman, most likely. Yeah. Uh, except for these weird uh, events or whatever. Miniseries, yeah. But now, a less ambiguous Satan than all these appears in Spawn <laughs> number 158, that's July 2006, covered eight by David Hine and Philip Tan. He's just Satan, the ultimate ruler of hell in the Spawn universe. There's no more to say about it. For years, the series' main contact for all things Underworld was Malibolga. Bolgia? Malbolgia. Malbolgia, thank you. But he was never shown to be the big boss. In this universe, Satan and God are brothers, offspring of the mother of existence, and uh, this is starting to sound like a religious pitch, Chris, so let's just leave it there. That's it. Yes, that'll that'll do it for, 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 the, for the Satan portion. Yeah. But uh, we're going to move on to more things Underworld Unleashed by shouting out the other folks, uh, shows and blogs that are uh, going to be taking part in this crossover. Now, since we're you know technically launching the crossover event, we're not exactly sure of exact dates for many of our partners, Ooh. though we will keep updating our show notes at weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com when each episode or blog post releases to make sure we're you know a one-stop shop where you'll find everything uh we have mark sweeney's i'm the gun he's at itgblogcast.blogspot.com he's gonna have a he's gonna have an episode featuring starman volume 2 number 13 and showcase 95 number 12 and this episode will be up in just a couple days october 3rd he's also going to be doing underworld unleashed number two in mid-october all right uh, comic Reviews by Walt at ComicReviewsByWalt.wordpress.com He's got blog posts that are going to cover Superman, Man of Tomorrow, number 3, Batman, number 525, and Green Lantern, volume 3, number 68. Between the pages at Retroist.com, we're going to be taking a look at the DC Villains Dark Judgment trading card set. 
Justice's First Dawn podcast at classicjla.podbean.com. They're going to do Extreme Justice number 10. Relatively Geeky presents at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. It's going to take brief looks at the uh, the main series of this and 27 of the tie-ins. Whoa, all right. <laughs> uh, Justice Trek, the podcast at justicetrek.podbean.com. Uh, the week of October 1st, they're going to do Casket of Justice number one. That's Justice League of America number 105. The week of October 8th, they're going to do Casket of Justice number two. And the issue is Rebels, R-E-B-E-L-S, 95, number 13. And the week of October 22, they're going to do their Casket of Justice number three episode. That's Justice League of America number 106. Idle Head of Diabolo at idle-head.blogspot.com is going to be taking a look at Justice League Task Force number 30. Diana Prince, Wonder Woman at new-wonder-woman.blogspot.com. They're going to look at Barbara Minerva Cheetah, with the, the Cheetah, up until Flashpoint. And then at Pop Culture Palace at thepopculturepalace.com, the week of the of October 7th, and we took taking a look at the Ray number 18. The week of October 14th, Abyss Hell Sentinels. And then the week of October 21st, the Ray number 19. And uh, probably be hitting a few issues here that were missed at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com throughout the month as well. So uh, we always steer you over there to keep an eye on that. So keep an extra special evil eye on that uh, blog for the month. But uh, yeah, so that, that wraps up our kickoff for the event. If you would like to write to us about uh, this issue, this series, Satan. Uh, you want to sell us your soul? You want to sell us your soul? You know, we're definitely taking some kind of offers. You know, we, we got to uh, we'll do you something You want to buy that. ours? <laughs> Just write to us at <laughs> weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. Uh, we're on Twitter at cosmic t-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. For uh, weekly readings of uh, new DC Comics, or weekly reviews, I should say, of uh, new DC Comics, you can check out our stuff at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can check out Chris's daily uh, reviews of DC Comics from all over the many years DC Comics has been publishing on chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. <laughs> also this month, you're going to do pick up a couple of Underworld Unleashed, and I bet you have some other Halloween tricks and treats to... Uh, Give the people out there, but you know you gotta Just check. Might. You yeah. gotta check this blog out. He's really coming in on a thousand uh, posts too. Really narrowing uh, in on that. October twenty sixth. If that, I don't get hit by a bus, or that is the my day. soul isn't taken. It's uh, good. I think you can still do it even if your soul is taken. So there's no <laughs> my, excuse. So, I might be doing this to get my soul back. <laughs> that's what it is. I gotta, <laughs> you will review another thousand comics. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, that website again. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. You can check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll find the show notes for this very episode and most of the other episodes we've done. You'll also find a chronological listing of all the episodes of The Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, The Young Animal Gatherum, and much, much more. Yeah, we got a really a ton of stuff. We actually might have to go over and sort of rearrange some things, I think, and make it a little, a little <laughs> we more need to curate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, be sure to check out the other fine podcasts and blog involved in hashtag best event ever for the rest of the story. In fact, you may want to just keep keep an eye on that hashtag on the social medias and see what pops up. That's but uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill mortally. See ya. Tell me what the page started.